0: Dub Lab. Our love is lie, And so we begin. Foolishly laying our hearts on the table, stumbling in. This is Beady Wolf and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And this morning, it's a great pleasure to welcome friend... Legend and my favorite karaoke duet partner, Craig Marks, who also happens to be the new music editor for the LA Times. Um, Craig's incredible staggering track record of steering the most important editorial voices in music history includes serving. Sorry, I'm a little out of breath from our karaoke session just then, behind the scenes, (laughs) includes serving as top editor for Spin, joining right after Nirvana's Nevermind came out, in addition to Billboard and Blender, amongst others. Craig was also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Pop Dust and co-author of I Want My MTV, a critically acclaimed history of the music channel's first decade, and he's currently working on an oral history of the WWE. Craig's written for publications including Rolling Stone, GQ, The New York Times, to name a few, and is arguably one of the most important music critics of our time.
1: Peter, you are shockingly out of breath from just a couple (laughs) verses of Stumbling In. (laughs)
0: Wow. But thank you very
1: much for that uh, over-the-top introduction. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, so that that song that you um, heard at the start of Orange Juice for the Years was really the song that defined Craig and my relationship. Um, we got to duet it back in New York uh, fairly recently, yep. um, having not seen each other for a, for a number of years, six or seven years. And... Um, I'd never heard it. I mean, Craig, why, why that song? Wow. Well, you
1: know, there aren't that many great duets for karaoke, first of all. Not that we want to totally delve into the karaoke subject, but um, it's a song I grew up on. Mm. I'm an old person, so it's a song from the 70s. Um, I love Susie Quattro. For, for fans of the TV show Happy Days, she uh, was a, a leading guest on that as Leather Tuscadero or Pinky—I can't remember which. Um, I don't know. I thought you could hit it, BD. I thought that song yeah. really felt like a, you know <laughs> something for
0: your repertoire, and I was just along for the ride. I just wanted to be Chris, but, but you wouldn't let me. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, just now when we were when we got to listen to it, I I I did both parts, and it felt pretty great. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, Craig, you know, is you're someone that from pretty much the first time I I heard about you, I met you, I really felt like I was in the presence of greatness. Um, and I, I'm not joking. I'm not saying that lightly. Um, you know, I just come out with this uh, sort of first innovation for my first record, which I actually have here, which is this 3D interactive theater for the palm of your hand. Um, and I was doing a, a sort of global Apple tour I guess with um, well with Apple Um, and I was in New York and needed someone to to interview me for this um, New York event and we were put in touch by an incredible person Janet Billig um, who was managing Nirvana at the time that you were at Spin Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah from the first time that we met you know I was sort of a bit apprehensive and wanted to know the questions that you were going to ask and and all this stuff. I hope I didn't tell you them in advance. You didn't. (laughs) No, you wouldn't. But then, you know, we had what I thought was just this casual coffee. Um, You'd also found a copy of my mom's punk book, which I didn't actually believe existed. And so you were proof that, you know, that she had written this book because I'd kind of been sort of dismissive of it. And, um... Yeah, and we had this coffee and then, you know, I realized that actually when we did the interview the next day, the coffee, you essentially created this very natural conversation that was just like, you know, what we what we talked about over coffee that felt entirely natural, but also where you were weaving together this wonderful narrative. And I just remember thinking... Like fuck, that's what real journalism is, you know. And since then, I don't know. I hope
1: I've tried to disprove that all to you since <laughs> I've met you.
0: No, I, well, you can be as you can be as sort of s- satirical as you like, but I feel like that going deep and that sort of really making it seem effortless, but you know, um, essentially knowing how to knowing what the interesting parts are. And
1: well, the one thing I'll say is that I think, well, yeah, you made it easy. Um, but B, you know, I think getting to know when I'm, uh, I've, I've been a journalist. I've mostly been an editor um, throughout my career. And I think I always ask my writers to try to get to know the people that they're writing about, not just as artists, but as people. And so you brought up your mom's book, but getting to know your, a little bit about you and getting to know what your mom was about and, and your your parents and where you came from, that was an important part of me feeling I could ask you questions about your music. Um, And so I try to kind of humanize the people that we're covering and writing about as no matter who they are, because I think that's what makes people interesting. You know, their their backgrounds help form who they are. So that's just, you know, what I think is good journalism in in some regard.
0: Absolutely. Um, And so today, you know, the idea of this show is, really to delve into your musical mind and find out a bit more about, you know, what makes you tick? What What was the music that as you were growing up was having this direct impact and influence on you um, that sort of shaped who you are today, but also what you've done, you know, with being an editor, with being a journalist. Um, and the title of the show, Orange Juice for the Years, is taken from this Oliver Sacks quote about the power of music, how it goes, you know, way beyond entertainment. So I just want to ask that with that in mind, you know, this quote, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. How would you interpret that?
1: Well, I'm going to go back to something that you said that music is more than entertainment, but I also want to make it clear that it, it that being entertainment is is awfully good and positive and, and important to recognize. You know, I think often it it's great to look I mean, music contains lots of levels. You know, there's lyrics, there's there's sounds, there's biographies, there's trends, there's history about it. it. It it brings it all together. And yes, any any song can lift you up or bring you down, or you can play it at a funeral or you can play it at your wedding. It has all that kind of it marks moments in your life, but also it, you know, it is entertainment. And I think pop songs, you know, the form, the three minute form that almost anyone really can can attempt, you know, it's not that complicated, really. It doesn't take a lot of money to make a song. So it's very democratic. And I think what I've always loved about popular music is how very democratic it is. Um, It's really made mostly kind of, not just by teenagers, but often by teenagers for teenagers at its heart, at its roots. And so I like to celebrate that part of the popular music experience for me as both an editor, a listener, and a journalist.
0: What was the first song that imprinted on you? Well, it's a good question, BD. Um,
1: Well, so I was born in 1961. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of uh, Long Island, New York, which is... um, for those who don't know, it's out, about 90 minutes outside of New York City is where I grew up in a town called Stony Brook um, in a very suburban uh, neighborhood. My dad sold cars. My mom was a homemaker, very middle class. Um, and we listened. We were in the car all the time and we listened to the radio all the time. And so really, that's how I came to know music and came to love music was through listening to the radio. The first record I remember buying or having, I'm sure I couldn't have bought it because I was six, was among the first ones was uh, the... Some British Invasion records, the uh, the Dave Clark Five, Freddie and the Dreamers, um, and Paul Revere and the Raiders, who were an American band, but kind of became popular during the British Invasion, and the Beatles. And the Beatles, I think the first Beatles record I owned was Magical Mystery Tour, which isn't really a particularly important Beatles record. I've never seen the movie. I just remember the album artwork scared the shit out of me because it was weird and sort of psychedelic and pop art at the same time. And the song "Hello Goodbye," which was the first single I believe from that record that McCartney wrote um, isn 't even that great of a song frankly it's I think Rolling Stone listed it as the hundredth out of one hundred best Beatles songs, which seems probably appropriate, uh, but it's very hypnotic and and I think the simplicity the you say yes, I say no, you say stuff, I say go appeal to my very modeled six-year-old brain
0: well let's take a listen to hello goodbye the beatles so that's really not much of a song (laughs) it turns out but i like it so that was Hello Goodbye by the Beatles, 1967. Yeah. Um, and the first track that, that made Craig think, whoa, there's a whole world out there. <laughs> yep. You were saying that you grew up in Stony Brook, Long Island. Um, what was life, and I know it's kind of an impossible question to answer, but what was life like at the time and what were your parents like and what were you like as a kid?
1: Um Well, before I discovered pot, I think I was, uh, you know, a pretty quiet, nerdy, kind of sports and mad magazine obsessed little pimply kid. I hope you discovered pot later than seven. And then, yeah, I was eight and a half when I discovered (laughs) weed. Yeah. Um, No. And then um, when I in in my tween years, I guess, um, junior high school, um, you know, I was I was like uh, annoyingly normal, I would say. Uh, you know, I listened to the radio. I listened, you know, musically speaking, listened to Elton John and Billy Joel and maybe Aerosmith if I was feeling really, you know, kind of devilish. And, um, and then when I was about in 1977, when I was about 16 or maybe the year before that, I started getting into, I discovered the very first kind of wave of punk rock and new wave. And that really... That was probably after I stopped smoking pot and went through my yes and, Mm. uh, you know, rush phase. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And that really changed everything for me, both, you know, personally and probably then professionally, was that I really identified with what I was, you know, not politically, but I wanted to identify with the kind of the intellectual ambition of punk rock and new wave. And I didn't feel like I fit in in the suburban upbringing that I was raised I wanted to I basically wanted to go to New York City all the time and mm. see shows and you know discover life outside of the burbs um and I think the the music that was coming out of England and New York and other places in the in 77 78 79 really helped me explore that.
0: And what about, you know, literature? Did you have a lot of books literature. in your house? Yeah,
1: literature. well like- <laughs> uh, no, you know, I read not really no. We had no books in the house. Um I read magazines. A lot. Um, and I began to read music magazines a lot in the 70s. Not Rolling Stone, actually, but the British magazines, NME, Melody Maker and Sounds, uh, some smaller magazines, New York Rocker and Soho Weekly News. The Village Voice was really important in mm. my kind of cultural education um, and, and just learned. And then st- I would say once I got to college, I started to read more novels and, and nonfiction works. But um Mostly I was just listening to music and um, learning about it through whatever I can get my hands on.
0: And did you realize that there was a an interest at the time in potentially writing about it?
1: No, not really. Um, when I got to college uh, in Albany, New York uh, in 79, I really got mostly involved in the college uh, radio station. That was like very formative. What was all, it called? It was WCDB. It oh. Still exists. We just had our 40th anniversary. Amazing. Yeah, uh, but I also wrote for the school newspaper. But it was really just a sidelight. The the radio part was really what I was mostly interested in. So
0: you did a lot of essentially what I'm doing now it,
1: n- <laughs> not nearly as well of course beady but yes I did
0: you managed to like not lose your breath but, the-
1: <laughs> but you know we promoted shows on campus and off campus mm. you know we I was very involved in programming the radio station and You know, we just most of what I did at college revolved around music and the college radio station.
0: And why Albany? I mean, was is that just the
1: Albany? Albany. Say it after me, Albany. (laughs) Wait, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a state school that's about four hours away from New York City. Um, There was there was no burning desire to go there. It's just Mm. it's just where I ended up. And were you studying?
0: What were you (laughs) studying?
1: Psychology. Okay. Um, But but again, just to like. I mean I, I graduated and I did mm. fine but it was really all about going to the it was all about the college radio station my whole everything revolved around that all my friends and and all my interests really and that and that eventually led to a job in the in the music industry when I got out of
0: college. Oh okay. And how, you did that the whole time you were at college mm-hmm. for the four all years. Four years yep. Okay. And you know now moving on so we heard the first song that imprinted um you know, and I r- was really trying to think about these questions in terms of those, yeah, those pivotal moments. Um, The first album that shaped who you are, who right. you were.
1: That's a very hard question. Uh, you know, that was the hardest question of the, of the five to ask, to answer, because a lot of albums shaped who, you know, I mean, I don't know. Is, does an album shape who you are? I mean, I suppose, but it's. It's kind of a grand statement to to admit to. Really, uh, I think so. I think so because you know, I mean, I loved. I can, you know, I went to go see Elton John perform uh, a few months ago, and I can still sing every word to the entire Captain Fantastic and Brown Derby Cowboy album because it came out at a time where I could just retain. I was so into it, and I yeah. could retain every every. You know, every every pause in every lyric, I just knew it all backwards and forwards. So it imprinted itself. I'm not sure it changed who I am exactly. Uh, the same for, you know, a number of Springsteen albums and, you know, and Stones albums mm. and such like that. But I do remember that um, when the first, well, well it was the third, but the first kind of semi-popular album by Prince came out called Dirty Mind, which I think was 81, um, it I, I think I read about it in the Village Voice um, and then decided to write about it for my college newspaper. But it just it, you know, the cliche, it blew my mind, but it really did blew, blow me away. It was so great and so tuneful, but also so dirty. It was the dirtiest record I'd ever heard, which I just couldn't, you know, I mean, I, I maybe I was a naive, sheltered, suburban kid um, and hadn't listened. You know, I'd listened to plenty of Motown and R&B Um and and early hip hop too, but nothing with the kind of uh, the libidinous appeal of of Prince and, and and the fact that he played his own instruments and uh, almost you know played almost all the instruments on the record. Um, yeah, you know, I was just dazzled. I just if I could have worn black panties and a leather trench coat to college that, and nothing else as he did on the record cover, I would have. Is that why have. you're
0: wearing it now? That where I, it's an homage.
1: <laughs> yes. If you could see check Craig my, right check now. My Instagram, please. <laughs> um and so <laughs> I uh so A, it, it it is a record that I reviewed, you know, not particularly well, but so that had some kind of, you know, meaning in my career arc, I suppose. But the open mindedness of Prince and his embrace of kind of pansexuality or whatever one might call it and just like how upfront he was about it, I found, you know, not I couldn't aspire to it, but I found inspirational both personally and professionally. I thought, like, this is the kind of music that I really want to endorse.
0: Let's take a listen to When You Were Mine from Prince's Dirty Mind. Craig, I think you should put the raincoat back on. Sing too, way too much. <laughs> we are here. I did shave down this morning, so I hope that yeah. sure helps. No happy trail. Okay. <laughs> so we're here with legendary veteran uh, music editor uh, Craig Marks from. Those are Sp-
1: both synonyms for old, but go ahead.
0: Yeah, I know. I don't like veteran. It's, it's, it's I feel veteran. like veteran's terrible. Yeah, it is
1: really- It's a a diss.
0: Okay. Seasoned. (laughs) Seasoned editor from um, Billboard, Spin, Blender, currently music editor for the LA Times. And we're trying to understand what made Craig the man that he is today. Um, And that was the song, well, that was the record and the song, uh, Prince's Dirty Mind, and we just heard When You Were Mine, that craig really responded to while you were at university uh, and you ended up reviewing the album i did do you do you remember what you wrote uh no absolutely not
1: i disliked it a
0: lot do you remember the was there anything like that at the time struck you apart from the sex and the and the sort of subversiveness was there something particular that you know and i know you talked about it a bit um before but well you know
1: in 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 New York, where I was still, uh, in 1981, you know, there was still a real divide between, and probably is today, a bit less so, between liking white music and liking black music. Um, and Prince was an artist who was important in bridging that divide for some people. Um, and I think uh, writing about it probably um, felt important to me because I thought that the students of SUNY Albany should know about this weird black guy who is making this incredible music that, um, and so it, it, you know, in a teeny tiny way, it had some kind of social import mm. f- for me as well to, as a fan too, to, you know, on the radio station that I worked at at college to play, uh, all kinds of music felt also kind of, it felt slightly radical
0: in a tiny, teeny tiny way again. Were you aware when you wrote that piece that that was something you really enjoyed doing? Yeah, I think so. It seemed
1: like it was um, again a, a kind of a worthwhile approach.
0: And I, f- you know, I feel and like something that
1: music. I think I'm sorry to interrupt. But mm. Something that music I've, I've always found to be pretty radical and revolutionary about is is bridging, not even bridging. I mean, obviously, there's there's you know there's racial divide in our country. But I think music is really good at trying to um, erase that as uh, you know, in, in ways that it doesn't intend to necessarily, but, but still does.
0: Which actually goes back to that quote about music going way beyond entertainment. You know, so um, in that way it is, it's a big unifier and, you know, just on a social level, but then also on a neurological level, it does amazing things. Um, I feel like with that, with that record, the combination of, you know, rock and funk and soul mm. and even punk, that must have been pretty radical at the time. Uh,
1: completely. Um, and it wasn't embraced by every, you know, that what, that record wasn't a particular, the Prince album wasn't really a big hit. Mm. Um, but like the smart kids knew about it and, you know, just loved it. Um And I think New Wave, which and the New Wave dance culture that I kind of came to uh, age in uh, and with in the in the early in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, going to clubs in New York City, um, seeing seeing groups play, dancing to music. It was all about, you know, this kind of mix of sounds and mix of people and mix of cultures, all, you know, kind of, you know, one nation under a groove sort of thing. And, And I think Prince really was all about that.
0: And just on a personal level, was there a person or a relationship or, you know, someone in your life at the time that that album or that song really connected to?
1: Um, not, not on a kind of romantic level, uh, but, but friends, you know, meeting people at, at SUNY Albany and my college who were also, you know, fans of that record in particular, uh that was a big thing like finding your fellow tribe members who you know got off on Prince mm. was you know was something wasn't it wasn't as easy as it is now to find you know fellow tribe members of a of a fan of a of an artist or something you had to really seek them out and you know there was no internet there was no Instagram and so um finding people who were you know big into dirty mind was like finding your 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 soulmate in a way
0: people who love karaoke as much as you do. Yeah,
1: that's a little easier to find now. But people <laughs> who like Dirty Mind, that was that was a you know, needle in a haystack.
0: Um, I'm really curious about how you first encountered MTV. Um, and obviously that record, I think wasn't it nineteen eighty? I feel like it was pre MTV. Yeah, well MTV was eighty one. Yeah. I mean,
1: Prince Prince's videos didn't really get played on MTV in earnest until later on. Um, so, I first encountered MTV when I was selling pots and pans door to door as a summer job um, in, in 1981. So, it signed on the air on August 1st, 1981. I was in, I think I was in Philadelphia, um, and I saw it, on, it playing in people's living rooms. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't even available in New York City for the first year or LA for the first year of MTV's existence.
0: Were you aware when you first saw it that it was something special? Yes. Something?
1: I think everybody, I mean, it didn't take any great soothsaying to know that like, holy shit, this is like, I could watch this all day long and I, and I have, and I will. Um, It was, yeah, it was, it was profoundly both revolutionary and insanely fun. You know, the, the videos were so bad and good, but it didn't matter because you'd never seen music videos before. I hadn't really, maybe outside of. Uh, You know, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, which was kind of a proto music video that got, you know, played on top of the pops and stuff, um, which I had no access to. Uh, But watching, you know, Bad Journey and Billy Joel videos and then watching fantastic Duran Duran and ABC videos all all smooshed up against each other, you know, on an endless loop, essentially, was, you know, was amazing. It was just it was just couldn't been more fun.
0: And I think that mix of genre, you know, I think that has to be such a unique factor of it that you would just never usually see those artists side by side. Right. Well, when MTV first started, they only had
1: about 250 music videos that existed in the world to play, so they just had to play those 250. Basically, they played there was a there was a band from Albany, New York, where I went to school called Blotto, uh, who had a and the singer was named Sarge Blotto, and they had a novelty hit like a 50s styled novelty hit called "I Want to Be a Lifeguard." I, we don't ever play it, uh, but but they made a video and and that video was on MTV for the first you know in the first thirty songs that MTV ever played. That's there, so they really did play anything that they everything that that was out there. Mm. And then of course you know once the record companies realized that MTV airplay was helped them sell records, they started to insist that their bands make music videos. And then there was a lot more good videos to choose from. Not too far after the launch, but but. You know, and then in 1982, you know, MTV was still programmed like a uh, kind of a rock radio station. The people who started it were mainly from the radio industry. And so they essentially only played white rock music. And the only reason they played Duran Duran and ABC and A Flock of Seagulls, which they probably wouldn't have otherwise, was because their videos were really spectacularly good compared to most of the music videos. And then there's a famous story where uh, Michael Jackson made his Billie Jean video, which was a wonderful video. And obviously he was a big superstar, but MTV did not want to play the video because it was from a black artist. Um, and it took a, a concerted effort by the record label where they essentially said, I'm going to boycott. You can't have any of our videos unless you play Michael Jackson. This is the record company's version of the story, which I think is true. Uh, and MTV relented. And then they played billy jean and it became a monster hit and then a few months later michael jackson made thriller uh, which is maybe the most famous Mm. video of all time and that video transformed the fortunes of mtv which might have gone out of business frankly without the massive audience that came along with thriller
0: i feel like you know a lot about mtv i I happen to know a lot about mtv (laughs) do you have a book about the subject? i might have a book
1: yeah it's called i want my mtv okay soon to be a major motion picture
0: Amazing. I cannot wait. Um, And what were the next, you know, those next 10 years like for you transitioning from college um, before you started working at Spin? Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that you sold records over the phone in the 80s. You've read somewhere? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Uh, I did. In fact, uh, my first job out of college was um, working for a record distributor, which meant that, uh, you know, we'd get shipments of independent uh, and import albums and 12 inches and and, uh, magazines in every day to the warehouse. And I would call up record stores that were my accounts. And I'd say, today we got in the new... Ah, uh, Duran Duran, twelve-inch for girls on film. How many would you like? And they would tell me, and we'd ship them in a box. Uh, and we did this. It was at the uh, and and then the, the this record distributor decided to start a, a record label, which a lot of the distributors did. And so uh, we started an independent record label called Homestead Records, which was the uh, uh, first home really to a lot of pretty important indie rock bands: uh, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., uh, Big Black. Uh, Naked Rega, and a whole bunch of kind of really seminal, as they say, uh, indie and hardcore bands. Um, So I started doing that. I I helped run the record label. I sold records over the phone. And then we put out a fanzine, too, to help promote both help promote our records uh, and just to write about music. And I put that out, and that's what kind of got me into the journalism part of
0: the game. And just before we move on to space, which weirdly is also connected with MTV, Um, you know, you said that Spin's place in the world dovetailed with the rise of Nirvana. And I feel like, you know, Spin, Nirvana, MTV, you intrinsically linked in a number of ways. Um, So how would you unpack that?
1: Well, chronologically, um, I was, uh, I came to work at Spin in in September of 1991, which Coincidentally, was the month that Nevermind came out, the Nirvana album, which I'd heard at my previous job, which was editing a kind of a college mag, a college radio trade magazine called CMJ, um, and I met the owner of Spin, and he hired me to be the music editor, which I was extremely unqualified for, except for the fact that I just liked music and knew some writers, um, and you know, Spin was was. Uh, created in, in the late 80s as an alternative to Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone magazine was kind of by and for boomers, baby boomers. Even though I was born on the on the kind of cusp of the boom and Gen X, I uh, really associated it with Generation X far more. Um, and so Spin was the alternative to Rolling Stone. And if Rolling Stone was going to kind of never really quite, I think, grasp in an intuitive way, um, punk rock and new wave and hip hop uh, spin was going to, by dint of when it was created and the people that worked there, was going to embrace those those genres, and so when uh, so it always championed hip hop and R and B, and it always it always had championed uh, alternative rock, um, and then when Nevermind came out and you know, it's basically just shit blew up, and we were there from the beginning supporting those bands, supporting Nirvana, supporting Pearl Jam, Hole. Uh, you know, all those all those bands are now grunge bands and probably now classic rock bands. Um, and luckily for Spin, those, you know, Nevermind became the biggest selling rock album of its time, along with Pearl Jam's 10 um, and Smashing Pumpkins and all, these, all this stuff followed that we were just happened to be there to cover and align ourselves with. And I think those artists felt that Spin was, for them, And so they, you know, they uh, participated in in the magazine's uh, history as well. Um, And so just, you know, just kind of all dovetailed nicely.
0: Okay, so moving on, Um, we've heard the song that imprinted the album that shapes who you are, even though you have issues with that question. (laughs) Um, And now I want to hear the music you'd send into
1: space. Okay, well, so I cheated on this, obviously. Um, But but it's not a cheat because this is the way that the culture works now. Right. Like no one. Why would one only send an album into space when there's when Spotify? she said a song, (laughs) a song when when Spotify exists. Right. Um, When I I remember very distinctly, one of my favorite musical memories was when I first stumbled on Napster, which was in uh, I think probably was in either nine, probably in 2000. And. You know, part of what a journalist does or what a magazine does is recommends music that they, you know, enthuses about music that they want other people to listen to. Um, and so I spend a lot of time as a consumer and a music fan figuring out what people who know more than me like to listen to. You know, I find that and, and discovering songs kind of track by track through mm-hmm. through other people who, you know, whose experiences are are. Interesting to me and whose taste I endorse or or want to appreciate. Uh, So that's what Napster was. Why Napster was great because you could just go online and search for a song, and next thing you know, you'd see somebody's playlist, someone you didn't know, and there'd be three thousand songs there, and they happened to have the one that you wanted, and then they had these three other three thousand other songs that they'd ripped illegally, and you could just graft off of their playlist, and it was just wonderful. It's just the best part of music sharing. Um, so so. Long story short, uh, there's a guy named David Johansson who people should know. He's the uh, one of the, the lead singer of the famous band the New York Dolls from the 1970s, and then became uh, Buster Poindexter later in his career. Um, about 10 years ago or so, he started a radio show called The Mansion of Fun that he does on satellite radio. And Johansson's a classic New Yorker. He which means to me that he embraces all the kinds of musics that we've been talking about, but he's way smarter and more worldly than I do than I am. And he's super deep and knowledgeable about the blues and country blues and, and, uh, and Cuban music and opera, which I'm not, you know, okay, I'll I'll veer from him on that one Uh, and sixties folk and fifties R and B. And he's just got an insane brain for music and a great spirit about it. He likes, he likes dramatic music and fun music and joyful music and he doesn't care where it came from and so his radio show mansion of fun i think is no longer on the air but he would basically just play five hours worth of songs back to back to back to back and he'd break into some kind of dopey ramble every so often but he he didn't really back read the songs or anything but i wanted to play one of the songs from that playlist that i thought exemplified the spirit of johansson and and, uh, and and maybe a little a little part of my soul. And what song is that, Craig? It's uh, Mickey and Sylvia's Love is Strange. It's from 1957, a great R&B, sort of a novelty song because it has this great spoken word part in the middle. Uh, male, female, kind of sexy love song. Uh, Sylvia is Sylvia Robinson, who went on to start uh, Sugar Hill Records, a famed hip-hop label. Uh, Mickey, I can't remember, Mickey Baker, I think is his name, is one of the great, I think Rolling Stone said he's one of the 100 most important guitarists of all time.
0: Let's take a listen. Sylvia? Yes, Mickey? How do you call your lover boy? Come here, lover boy.
1: And if he doesn't answer?
0: Oh, lover boy. And if he still doesn't answer? Ooh. That is going through the waves into, into space right now. I don't know what waves they are. But the, the, the microwaves. Katrina, Katrina and the waves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that was Love is Strange by Mickey and Sylvia uh, from David Johansson's Mansion of Fun, which is a very long, well-curated playlist of, um, of passion, really, And, you know, you said it reminded you of the early days of of Napster. And, you know, this feeling again, we're talking about MTV, we're talking about Prince, you know, this ability to mix genres, but in a way where there's still a thread. And, you know, that thread often is just one great passion or curiosity or ability to kind of, you know, understand music genetics. And I feel, I kind of feel like I have to say this. I feel like that is lost today um, in that way that, you know, someone like David Johansson or, Um, any form of like that really in-depth curation is able to create something that feels like you're discovering something that's perfect for you, even if there are moments of like, you know, hit and miss. Um, I feel like now we've sort of replaced curation with with volume and with, you know, metrics and with algorithms. And I, I do think that a lot of the time it comes back to one person's vociferous you know passion or interest or you know just ability to kind of really think about this stuff on a deep level it doesn't mean it always translates but
1: sure well I think you know hopefully sometimes that's what music good music criticism and journalism does
0: absolutely and you know and I feel like that's why what you do is is so important particularly today because you do still need these voices and it's not about you know gate being a gatekeeper but it's about basically saying you know based on x and y and z you you know you might dig this you know um so that was my kind of thoughts on the matter but um we have moved through you know such an incredible period of you know what you've done there's just so much and i kind of feel like it's time to have my memorial service (laughs) is what you're saying yeah, okay. basically, <laughs> we've sort of got to the point of your demise. Uh-huh. and It might be in L.A., you might be back on the East Coast, who knows. But um, have you ever thought about that? Never thought about it. <laughs> it was the first thing I, I thought I about. Try,
1: I try my hardest to never think about it.
0: Okay. So, yeah. um, well, as a kid, that was the first thing I identified as being something I wanted music to, which was my funeral uh-huh. as a six-year-old. So I kind of have to ask... What would you... Well, and, and you're not alone. I mean, I've, I've actually looked at um, playlists of, you know, a
1: lot of people are very concerned about what's going to play at their funeral. And there are a lot of artists who get a lot of streams because their songs are played at funerals. Uh, and, and I'm going to pick one of your songs, BD, to play at mine. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this... <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> Why
0: would you take that away? <laughs>
1: well, maybe as an intro music, but not at the actual, you know, no, people are entering it. my service. Okay. Um, but... You know, well, clearly I'm not going to be there at my memorial service. I'll be dead. Uh, and so, you know, I appreciate uh, one of my favorite quotes of all time is uh, what Warren Zevon said when he was dying and he went on the David Letterman show and Letterman asked him, do you have any advice, you know, for people? And and Zevon's answer was enjoy every sandwich, which I think is really like perfect. It's both pithy and kind of gets at like, you know, it's the little things. You know, in a lot of ways, and you should appreciate, you know, it all. And so, for me, you asked me what song would play at my funeral service. I picked one that would be for the people who are still there, and it's uh, it's a song called "Enjoy Yourself." It's later than you think, and lots of versions. It was written, I think, um, in the early '40s and popularized by Guy Lombardo. But the version I chose, which is the one I first heard, was by the Specials, this great ska punk band. This is from their second album.
0: Let's take a listen. can tell you that Craig Marks is enjoying himself while he's still alive. But yeah, that was Enjoy Yourself, the specials. Um you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. Today we were joined by the incredible Craig Marks, top editor for Spin, Billboard, Blender, current music editor for the LA Times, amongst so many other things, co-author of I Want My MTV. Um and you're currently working on a book about the WWE, which is coming out soon. No,
1: not no. Soon. Okay. <laughs>
0: um but such a deep and um, rich history in the world of journalism and, and you know, magazines and music culture um, and really one of the, I'd say, most important voices of our time. Um, so, yeah, you've now passed away and mm-hmm. we're <laughs> sad. Um, is there, thinking about that song, could you imagine it a karaoke version, and who would karaoke I, I it for you? Actually, could
1: I? Well, I would have to karaoke it but for myself. You, you oh, like,
0: oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, well, then obviously um, I think the specials would probably um, reunite just to oh, send me off with one last hurrah. Okay.
0: <laughs> I accept uh, nothing less. So the last question of today, Orange Juice for the years. thinking about the music that has been, you know, very important to you. Um, and I know it's impossible because there's so much, but you have a son, Porter. I do. Um, is music a big part of your relationship?
1: It is. Uh, you know, he, uh, I, I insist that he, f- that he listens to whatever he wants to listen to. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not the kind of dad that plays him, you know, Velvet Underground Records and expects him to, you know, to admire my cool taste. So all he really listens to is hip hop. Mm. Um, and I'm fine with that as, you know, I mean, I, but his, his, his horizons will expand eventually. Is there one record that you would pass on to him? You know, that, this was the hardest question to answer because there, there, frankly, there isn't, you know, most of what I would pass on to him, he would right now, he would completely reject. So it would be a useless exercise, but it, so it, I thought of it more, what kind of values would I want him to um Understand that I was interested in him getting to know about me and, and about what I think is is good. And so I thought of artists who I admire and, and the kinds of values in music that I'm fond of. And I came up with, um, there are a lot of choices, but I thought the B-52s, who were, uh, were were and are a great band from Athens, Georgia. And their first album came out um, in 70, I'm going to say 79, I can't exactly remember, but I was in high school, when, maybe I was still in high school, so I think 79. Uh, yep, and, uh, and, you know, they were both uh, hetero and, and homosexual. They were male and female. They appreciated a, a great, dumb pop song. Um, but there was something more to it. Um, and they were real outsiders, and they just created the world in their own image. And that's what I really admired about them.
0: So wrapping up today, um, of all the publications you've been at the helm of outside of the LA Times... Where did you feel you made the most difference? And was there a particular period or publication that you're most proud of?
1: Uh, two different answers. So Spin the, the spin is where I made the most difference for sure. Um, you know, I think the magazine had the biggest imprint on the culture. I think Blender was a magazine I enjoyed editing the most and, and had the best time at. And the one that I think it should still exist, but for the vagaries of financial fortunes.
0: And just looking back at your choices today, what do you think is the thread that connects all of those? Enjoy yourself it's, it's later
1: than you think that, that's my, my, uh, my gravestone.
0: Well um, what better words to end today's show so let's take a listen to Dance This Mess Around by the B-52s thank you Craig Thank Marks. you so much BD BD